Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Has the news in 2021 already made it feel like the bottom is falling out of your world? Well, what won't help that is your own bottom falling out of anything, so you may as well pop it into something comfortable, and while you're on the edge of your seat watching the state of things, at least that seat will feel real, real snug. British boxers make classic and crazily comfy underwear and loungewear, from knickers to slippers, dressing gowns to PJs, boxers, face masks and, um, even dog bandanas. Well, dog's got a lounge too, right? British boxers manufacture all their products with minimal waste, all environmentally friendly like, and pay all their workers properly for creating them too. Basically, they're a properly nice, ethically sound bunch, and my own butt would sing their praises, but let's be fair, no one wants to hear that on a podcast. Check out their range at British-Boxers.com, and as a listener to the Partly Political Broadcast, and if you use the code PARPOLBRO15 when you check out, you'll get a sweet 15% off too. Yes, that's right, I'm now in the pockets of Big Pyjama, and honestly, I couldn't be more comfortable. I'll keep this brief, because that's also what they make, so head to British-Boxers.com, because not everything has to be pants in a bad way. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that isn't worried about its secret wealth being exposed in a big document leak because no one knows which jar I keep that £5 in for emergency crisps and they never ever will. I'm Tina Duyeb and this week as Children's Pipe Cleaner Model Project and Chancellor Rishi Sunak says that there's no magic wand to solve global supply problems, that is a real shame as it'd definitely help loads if there was a way to make the government disappear. Often, a political photo opportunity will be made or a phrase will be said by the British government and many will flock to call it a distraction from what they're really doing, which, by the way, is inexplicably ruining everything and also doing not enough all at the same time, like Schrodinger's twats. But there are times that I would disagree on the validity of supposed dead cats because sometimes they're actually blaring foghorns that tell us everything we need to know about the reality of British politics. Yesterday, for example, a photo emerged of the Prime Minister and bin bag full of dog shat on leaves, Boris Johnson supposedly going for a run in Manchester. Yet on inspection, he's wearing a shirt and suit shoes and appears more like he's been caught short or was discovered in someone's hotel cupboard and had to leg it again. 
Potentially, this picture was publicised as a shameless PR opportunity, with the aims of showing our Prime Minister going to all the efforts to stay healthy, even though with every single picture we see, he looks more like something that's being eaten alive from the inside. But perhaps the truth is that the photographer is trying to show us something else. That Johnson runs for his health like he runs the country, with all the incorrect gear, an inability to plan properly and an absolute disregard for the damage that it'll cause in the long term. If we take that as red, it means people that there is hope. And by hope, I mean I'm crossing my fingers and toes that he pulls a calf muscle within days and he has to limp round Manchester while loads of people shout wanker at him. The theme at this year's Conservative conference appears to be alternate realities, with every speaker and attendee going all out to pretend that they're in a universe other than this one where things are going swimmingly and not just in the climate change way we're going to see in years to come. Why shouldn't the Conservatives seek escapism from our current shitty reality? All the rest of us want to, it's just that on week three without fuel it's pretty hard to escape anywhere right now. Collapsed Lung and Chief Brexit negotiator David Frost embraced this theme by telling the very few attendees who hadn't realised they could get an equal amount of stimulation watching a sewage pipe leak that the British renaissance had begun. Correct! We have had a countrywide rebirth in so much as we've massively regressed and we're now being run by babies. Maybe I'm being mean, perhaps, and as Frost said, the long bad dream of EU membership is now over, if, like him, you have nightmares about the general public having enough food or fuel, which means you can't cackle at their misfortune like a barren greenback tribute act. We are a very different country now to the one we were before. I mean, now we're one where the army deliver fuel, firefighters are asked to drive HGVs, and bus drivers have to protect you from police officers. Hopefully it's only a matter of time before politicians are rallied together to fix a burst pipe in the North Sea, enter a collapsing mine, or something equally as dangerous that they'd have absolutely zero ability of managing. We're just in a period of adjustment, said the Prime Minister. Yeah, you know, of the kind where we have to get used to what it's like to not need food for sustenance and be able to survive cold temperatures using just the power of thought. Luckily, at the Conservative Conference, they don't need to worry about people's Christmases being too bleak for a Dickens novel, because in their themed alternate reality, it's got nothing to do with them. Foreign Secretary and bollard Liz Truss said the Prime Minister wasn't responsible for what is or isn't in the shops, and thankfully that is true, or we'd end up with just shelves and shelves of bangers and mash and blow-up sex dolls. But the government are responsible for all the regulations and circumstances that get things into shops. I mean, they aren't, but they're meant to be. Rishi Sunak said there are things they can do and things they can't do, which is a sort of nothing phrase you'd expect to hear in a Bitty McLean song. But while they can sort out an inadequate amount of visas or not enough army officers to help the situation, they can't just wave a magic wand and make global supply chain problems disappear overnight. Which is funny, because they definitely made them appear that quickly between December 31st 2020 and January the 1st 2021. I suppose it always takes longer tidying up a mess than making one. Thing is, we have to remember what's really important, and as the Prime Minister says, never mind life expectancy or cancer outcomes, but look at wage growth. I mean, wage growth isn't happening either, but if it was, at least you'd get to briefly enjoy it and be able to afford some now higher-costing food that also isn't there before then dying at a young age. And isn't that what we all want? Johnson said that wage growth has been stagnant for 10 years, so if only we could find out what sort of pricks were responsible for that. Ah, well, at least it's growing now just in time for furlough to end, when people are on 80% of their wages, and if they haven't been thrown into jobless oblivion with no support, then they'll get 100%, so that's growth, right? Like how if I steal your TV, and then one night when you're asleep, I put it back, only now you've missed all your favourite shows. But basically, you've gained a TV, yeah? Yeah? Rishi Sunak is pledging a £500 million plan for a jobs package, which will help all the people who've lost jobs thanks to Rishi's last two years of fucking useless schemes to now find jobs that pay worse and not remotely cover the £20 universal credit cut and tax rises. 
Sunak said in his speech to conference that he wants to focus on good work and better skills, guessing as he hasn't managed either of those himself yet. And he said that increasing benefits would just make people lean on the state, which they will be anyway due to the lack of food. The Chancellor reckons Brexit is in the long-term interest of the UK, though again he may just be referring to his and other Conservatives' private investments. Or maybe he just means that we'll still be bringing it up in 10 years' time whenever you refer to something else going wrong. I'm being facetious, obviously, as some people are indeed having huge amounts of wage growth, like, uh, for example, several Conservative donors who've all been named in the Pandora Papers. It's an odd name because the story of Pandora's box was that she unleashed evil, death and misery onto the world, whereas these 12 million leaked documents just show us where the billionaires who've already unleashed evil, death and misery onto the world hide all their money and dodge all their tax. It's like an MTV Cribs for money that should have been used almost anywhere else. Many names are contained in these papers, including loads of associates of Bad Morph, Vladimir Putin, and the Czech Prime Minister and Velcro shoestrap and Andrej Babis. Momo Demon couple Tony and Sherry Blair are also in there, having saved £300,000 in tax by buying property through an offshore firm. Still, it's probably the least violent way that Blair's been involved in occupying somewhere. In amongst all that are also details on the Azerbaijani president and owner of Bob's Burgers, Ilham Aliyev, who's been accused of looting his own country but has over £400 million of property in London. Though, to be fair, with what London's like, that could just be one studio flat where the toilet is in a shared hallway. The Aliyevs made a £31 million profit after selling some of their London properties to the Crown Estate, which is owned by the royal family and managed by the Treasury. Ugh, how embarrassing to the royal family, right? I mean, the only thing worse than buying tax-avoided property off a corrupt foreign leader would be harbouring an alleged paedophile amongst your ranks and protecting them from the law with the money you take from the public. But hey, only a true villain would be that grim, right? Several other Conservative names are also in the papers, but Johnson has insisted that all donations to the party are vetted, so I think that means that any concerns about them they have put to sleep rather than let them carry on causing problems for their owners. Sunak, of course, said the UK's record on tax avoidance is not a source of shame. Well, no, I suppose not to him and the Conservatives, as it's far more a source of income. Other highlights of the conference include the bride of Wackula, Carrie Johnson, a straight white woman giving a speech about defending LGBTQ plus rights. No, Carrie, you're not having a same-sex marriage just because your husband has zero imagination and only ever humps at you like a drunk sofa being carried the wrong way into a stairwell until he falls asleep. Sealant gun accident and housing minister Michael Gove said that levelling up allows everyone to live their best life, so he'll soon be announcing apprenticeships to become his own personal drugs mule. Boris Johnson's speech is on Wednesday and will no doubt include vacuous taglines such as the one he amended to be Build Back Bitter as he posted a video of him pretending to drink a beer. Thing is, Build Back Bitter is also an apt description of exactly how the country is going to feel after another fucking year of his leadership. Johnson's speech will be focused on the notion that actually these HGV driver shortages and the like are a good thing as less supposedly uncontrolled immigration will mean that Brits get paid more. Though I don't think it will work like that unless we've got such a shortage of labour everyone here has to do at least five jobs meaning that we'll be raking it in and saving loads because you'll only have two minutes of free time a year. Still, forget about the life expectancy dropping and think about that wage growth you'll have as you get five different inadequate wages all at once. Britain! Luckily, in order to tackle and provide opposition to the Conservatives' empty three-word slogans, the Labour leader and embodiment of the feeling you get when you're asked to sign for someone else's package because they aren't in, Keir Starmer, ended his party's conference with an extremely long 90-minute completely empty statement. In it, he mainly went on about how his dad made tools, which I suppose inspired Starmer early on as to what to blame for his own terrible work. The Labour leader said he was willing to break pledges if it meant that they would win. So it seems the big tactic to get voters on side is to say that they'll also lie, but they won't be as good at it as the Tories. But hey, everyone loves an underdog, right? 
Many policy wonks online said that Starmer did an incredible speech, though it could have just been that his voice, like a congested hairdryer, sent them into a meditative state for an hour and a half and they've not felt that calm in years. Really, it was exactly the same chat that might have appealed in the early 2000s, but much like the documentary on the Spice Girls, now is clear it has many things wrong with how it works. Starmer said it was a serious plan for government, which is the sort of thing you only have to clarify if it absolutely isn't. The Labour leader criticised Boris Johnson for being a showman with nothing left to show, but that is a dangerous stance to take when people like Saturday Night TV, which largely consists of exactly that. If the option they get is a really shit bit of entertainment that will collapse society, or the repeated droning on of a man who sounds like he's perpetually slightly underwater that will collapse society slightly more slowly, I can't imagine that many are going to choose the latter. Still, there were some good bits in his speech as people from the audience heckled him with his own decisions. As Starmer criticised Labour's previous Brexit strategy, someone yelled out that it was Starmer's idea, but he said they didn't bother him, perhaps thinking he was once again having to shout down his own conscience. The same policy wonks who loved the speech criticised the hecklers for shouting when Starmer was talking about the death of his mother, but actually no one shouted then. If you watch the footage, there's no one shouting at all. So either those wonks weren't paying attention or had made it up, and I suppose whichever it is, it shows why they may have thought that the speech was pretty good overall. I definitely thought of a much better speech as I zoned out while watching it, and mine mainly involved fart noises and someone very loudly saying the word plinth. One promise Starmer has kept from his Labour leadership campaign early last year was that he wouldn't give an interview to the equivalent of pissing on a tree's grave, The Sun, though he's only managed that by writing op-ed pieces for them instead. You might say that it's a vote-losing strategy to insult all of Labour voting Liverpool, but I wonder if his best chance is just appealing to readers who, like him, also hate the Labour Party. In other news, as Sarah Everard's murder, Wayne Cousins, was given a life sentence, it was revealed that he pretended to be on duty to kidnap her. The Met Police responded to that development with ways to make sure that people are safe if apprehended by a lone plainclothes officer, which included asking them if they're a real police officer, to which they could just say yes, and therefore that ruins that, or waving down a bus, which as you know magically works even if you're nowhere near a bus route and one would just fall out of the sky filled with helpful wizards. It's quite the arse to insist that bus drivers are now above the police, especially when the concern is that the police may be lying to you to cause harm, when, thanks to the government, we've already been through that with a bus as well. Another suggestion was to call 999, which would be tricky at best. I mean, how do you call them up to say that you're worried about the police, so maybe don't send more? Can they deploy bus drivers instead? Is that a thing they can do now? Another officer from the same department Cousins served with is on trial this week for a rape charge, and there are many other accounts of misconduct and a number of racist and misogynistic WhatsApps between police that are being investigated. That follows a cop being charged for being part of a neo-Nazi group and an inquiry that says Scotland Yard was institutionally corrupt, all of which puts the idea of there just being one bad apple to shame, when clearly the entire orchard needs to be cleared out and a realisation that the ground is now only good for a severe tarmacking. Or maybe if they are just individual bad apples, maybe questions need to be asked as to why all of them apply for jobs at the Met. Has that part of law enforcement completely fermented and become toxic? The Met Commissioner and Tortoise, Cressida Dick, who somehow still has a job, has ordered an independent review into standards and culture at the Met, which makes sense as to find bad apples, you need a special insider. Yeah, I said it. Said it. Dick said the Met depend on the trust of the public and they police by consent. Well, you know, unless you're holding a candlelit vigil or a Brazilian man or a tube or a young black teenager or really anyone that has zero reason to ever trust the police ever again. Boris Johnson has urged the public to trust the Met in the same way an alligator might tell you you should feel safe around a boa constrictor. The Prime Minister did acknowledge, though, that there are problems in how violence against women is tackled, as he probably has first experience of after the police were called round to deal with his loud altercation with Carrie two years ago. The Home Secretary and graduate of Monsters University, Pretty Patel, says police need to take harassment more seriously, though coming from her, she might just mean do a lot more of it. 
Mostly though, Patel has her sights set on introducing tougher punishments for a far more heinous crime. Protesters who block motorways. Even though I think it provided a nice change from motorways being blocked by cars anyway. And hey, if the fuel crisis continues, I'm not sure who else will do it. And then what's going to happen? In other news, the Green Party have two new leaders, which makes you wonder why they couldn't just recycle the old ones. They are Carla Denya, who looks like she comes straight from a kid's cartoon as the one with all the smart gadgets, and Adrian Ramsey, who also has the fresh face of someone whose mum made him wear a suit for his first day at work. The new leadership say they'll focus on power, not protests, which seems a bit odd for Green. I hope it's focused on reducing power. Maybe they want to gain power. I'm not really sure how it works. And it is time for Green to shine, which I think makes it emerald, but I'm not going to be a pedant. They are the youngest leaders of a mainstream national party, so hopefully they'll be able to make a load of headway for the Greens, as their youth will mean that they're completely and utterly invisible to all the other parties. The army are helping to ease the fuel crisis from this week, though hopefully they won't just fill their own tanks. It's still expected to go on for at least another seven days. It's very monkey's poor, isn't it? Do you remember how during the pandemic loads of people said they'd use their cars less when things got back to normal? Holler at thee, and what say thou? Um, thanks for tuning in to yet another episode of this shit. Why did I start it like that? It was a terrible intro. Um, I hope you're doing okay. I am having an unbelievably Monday Monday, uh, where it took me an hour to drive to the gym this morning uh, that is only 20 minutes away, and then I got there and realised I didn't pack my shorts, and apparently it's not like school, and you can't just do it in your pants, um, which is unfair. So then I had to drive an hour all the way back home that should have only taken me 20 minutes. They should, at the very least. All I'm saying, the gym should have had a box that contains shorts that other people have left there in them. That's what they had at my school, and you'd always end up in shorts that were four sizes too big for you and then you fall over and break your face and everyone would just tell you to stop crying and carry on they put magic cream on it oh hell it was always magic cream uh no matter what you did my legs fallen off magic cream it was incredible good times i'm just saying gyms need to step it up um yes i do go to the gym uh, regularly despite how unlikely that sounds and i've got very good at looking like i know what i'm doing and then spending two days completely unable to move my limbs uh, because i clearly didn't know what i was doing it's been a whole week of failed efforts uh, like that gym thing i have to say it's uh, one gig last week got cancelled due to fuel crisis nonsense and then the other I couldn't drive to um, even though I spent my Friday night when it was meant to be the gig that wasn't the gig and I spent my Friday night sitting in a queue at Tesco just for petrol um, I thought about playing my radio really loud and sticking my head out the window to inhale car fumes just to make it seem like a proper night out but um, I didn't know and I didn't get fuel either and then I spent my Saturday on different trains to the ones I was meant to get as all the ones I meant to get got cancelled and the cost of my ticket has basically rendered my gig fee useless grumble grumble fun times Look, I know I shouldn't be using a car much anyway I'm very aware of that and ideally, you know, in a wonderful utopian world, I'd get trains everywhere or hovercrafts or I don't know what would be the most environmentally friendly way that you could do it. I'd travel on a giant otter. I don't know. But basically, our stupid railways don't run often by the time a gig's finished. The last one's already gone. Um, you have to then pay for accommodation. Basically, it makes it pointless. So what I'm just saying, what I'm saying is that I hope the next crisis that occurs is one that doesn't affect comedians. That's all I want. Uh, pandemic's not good for us. Fuel crisis not good for us. I reckon I could gig in a war. I reckon I could do it. I mean, it wouldn't be nice. I don't want there to be a war, but I reckon I could gig in it, you know, in, in some sort of little bunker underground. I'd cheer people up. I mean, I probably wouldn't. I'd probably be quite bleak. It'd make things worse. But I'm just saying I could do it. You know, I could do it. Um, I reckon I could gig through some natural disasters, depending on where they were, how they were. Um, a plague of locusts, easily. Gigs are indoors. We should be fine. I'm just saying one of those, please. That would be lovely. Um, 
Also, I was going to just let you in on this. I uh, I, I got offered a job the other week that I uh, I wasn't sure about the details of it and I couldn't take it because of timings and things. So I politely declined. And then I've been offered it again. And it turns out um, that it's basically for one of the like the worstest companies and the worstest people and uh, some of the people I regularly slag off on this show. In fact, um, I, I did in, in the intro here. And uh, it turns out that the uh, the writing would have been for a political show that's going to be hosted by Piers Morgan. Uh, I'm so glad I said no. Isn't that horrific? I think I think had I found out that beforehand, I wouldn't have even mused on the possibility. Um, but I'd just like to say uh, that I have turned down money because of morals. Yeah, that's what I've done it. Because of morals. Uh, definitely, um, that was the reason. It's, oh, God, please join, join the Patreon because uh, morals, my morals don't pay my bills. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for being here. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Do join the Patreon.com forward slash parpol bro because I've got morals and I'm prepared to work for you. Then for Piers fucking Morgan, I was many years ago. I was very close to him at a thing. I was doing a thing for an education festival, and he was there for some fucking reason. Even though he's, I don't know what he would educate people in being an arsehole, being a fucking piece of shit. And I stood really close to him, had a very hot coffee in my hand, and it was one of those things of like, I don't want to ever get arrested, but I could just, I could just put this in your face. I didn't do it, obviously. Um, Anyway, um, I was going to say, thanks. Uh, join the Patreon. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for continuing to listen. Um, I The other bit of admin I've got to tell you this week is that regular pod helper Cat Day um, is writing a chapter in a book called Great Explanations in which scientists, um, which Cat is one of, explain their passions in a uh, chapter. So that includes Cat and it also cl- includes uh, Dr. Helen Sersky, uh, former podcast Dean Burnett and loads and loads of brilliant other people too. Um, but as with all good things in this age, it needs funding on Unbound. So I'm going to pop a link into the pod blurb please do give it a hand and pre-order a copy at the same time if you can that would be absolutely fantastic yeah i've done it i've ordered a copy even though i haven't got news uk's money maybe i should have taken the money and that would have slowly drained rupert murdoch's money away i could have just kept upping my fees was that what i should have done maybe i, I don't know i don't know how these things work the idea that they were going to hire me based on me writing this podcast is fucking hilarious they clearly never i've got at least just several descriptions of Piers morgan alone and i know on one i called him a professional clegner which i think is pretty accurate anyway um on this week's show there is an interview yeah really i finally managed to sort one out um hopefully that will be uh, regular from now on uh, there'll be interviews some people seem to now be available despite being able to have lives again um this week it is with patrick brown at the universal basic income lab network so you can probably get an idea of what we talked about uh, yes that's right a network of labradors who have really big ideas no of course not though if that does exist i would love to get them on the show even if it's not really got anything to do with politics um but i guess it could be couldn't it? I guess that could be like the beginnings of poor patrol and any system where dogs are in charge of emergency services would both be really concerning and yet also make the police a far more trustworthy group than they currently are so um wait hang on are police dogs complicit oh this is tricky anyway sorry what i mean is this Remember way back, back into time, at the beginning of the COVID era, which I don't know, was about 400 years ago, many mouths uttered wisdom about one hallowed way that everything could work out, well, in terms of support, while the world shut down. And that wisdom was UBI. Yes, not an unbelievably big iguana, which I think would also have helped or at least offered a very nice distraction, but universal basic income, which arguably would be a lot better than a big iguana. UBI is where all citizens of a place get given just enough dosh to help them get by without any morbid means tests to check if you're fit for work as you might have managed to grow back your head or stop being dead yet. 
It's been a talking point in the UK since around 1920, and recently the last incarnation of the Labour Party, as well as the SNP, the Scottish Greens and other Greens have all supported it too. But of course, come the hour of need, it made a lot more sense for Rishi Sunak to only help some people out, completely forget that others exist, and let you all have £10 off getting Covid at Pizza Hut. Now, as you can probably guess, it's not anywhere near the agenda of the two main parties in England because they think there's no money in letting people have money. Plus, Pretty Patel will have less despair to feed off and she might vanish. But it's still being considered by the Welsh Assembly, the Scottish Parliament and all the many Green parties. So could it possibly, ever possibly, maybe, 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 possibly, maybe, might actually happen? And more importantly, can it actually work? Or is, you know, giving everyone free money just a license for everyone to be total wasters and look after their families, enjoy their lives or find jobs they like? Ugh, shirkers, can you imagine? This week, I spoke to Patrick Brown at the Universal Basic Income Lab Network, Northern Ireland. Um, The UBI Lab have just released their resilience proposal to help those who have lost work after the furlough had ended, and then with plans for a further rollout around the country too. Now, I'm not even going to pretend that I was an impartial interviewer here, as I read through that proposal and spent the whole time going, well, that's just great. Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't you do that? It's just like the best thing I've read. And so, as you'll find, um, I really struggled to think of questions rather than just yelling at Patrick, let's storm Westminster and implement this immediately. Before scrolling UBI, eye on my head with a large marker and disappointing many iguana fans in the process. Uh, It was really great talking to Patrick, who I should also say is an Alliance Party councillor too, uh, though we don't really discuss that. Uh, We don't discuss Northern Ireland politics. It's nearly all about UBI. Um, And he's also about to finish his PhD in universal basic income and conflict transformation in Northern Ireland, which we do talk about a bit, obviously. So um, I hope you enjoy this glimpse of actually progressive, interesting politics possibilities. Here is Patrick. Patrick, we're speaking on the day that furlough has ended uh, across um, it's across England, definitely, and other parts of Britain too. Um, and that's going to leave a lot of people in quite a bit of trouble. And one of the suggestions that obviously UBI Labs has proposed um, is a universal basic income. And that's been something that was mentioned loads of times through the pandemic uh, as this would be the most sensible way to do things and didn't seem to come up <laughs> under any of the uh, government initiatives. Um, so I thought if we start right at the beginning, what is a universal basic income and what makes it better or would make it better than the current system that we have in place yeah great absolutely yeah i mean first off you know furlough ending today it's it's crazy isn't it just absolutely no alternative whatsoever except an increase to national insurance that will come in next year that will be felt by the middle class working families you know working people so uh yeah um Basic income was talked a lot about uh, at the start of the the COVID crisis. Unfortunately, the Conservative government sort of ruled it out from the the get-go. There wasn't really any positive uh, noises there. But really, the idea behind our proposal is that, you know, COVID and the impact of COVID is here to stay for for the long term. We'll be recovering for a long time and we need to build resilience back into uh, the economy, into society. And that's where this proposal has come from. Basic income in a nutshell is a uh, unconditional uh, payment, uh, a cash payment paid directly to everyone in in a given society. That can be in a defined geographical area, an entire country the entire world, hopefully one day. Uh, So you don't have to do anything in in return for it. Rich people get it, poor people get it, you know, single mother, person on the streets, Bill Gates, you know, everybody gets that payment depending on, and then it's just a case of working out how much that payment would be and how much it would be funded. And really that's what this proposal is, is trying to do, trying to put some figures behind that and then trying to crunch some of the numbers around how we could potentially fund it. 
and really give a, a, a suite or a menu of options around those different funding levers that we could employ to, to get it funded. So, I mean, I suppose one of the obvious ways in which is better than, say, universal credit is that nobody falls through the net. It would go to absolutely everyone. And therefore, you don't have any sort of ridiculous application processes. Mm-hmm. But would that also cover, you know, for people, for example, um, with disability needs who need carers and they need extra provisions, would universal basic income cover that? Or would they also need to be other benefits on top of that to to help those people? Yeah, so this depends on your definition of universal basic income. And there's probably, you know, there's, there's a growing critique, I suppose, on, on the left uh, that worries that basic income could come along and completely strip away the, the welfare state. And, you know, you get your X amount of money and that's it. You're left to fend for yourself. And that's not what we are promoting as the UBI lab. We very much want to plug a progressive UBI that tries to fill the, the gaps or the cracks in the welfare system as it is and build more security and create that income floor, that basic level of economic security for everyone in society, in addition to what's there already, with some changes. And you mentioned universal credit, an incredibly flawed, vindictive uh, system. My PhD actually talks about it as being a system of, of structural violence uh, within society, really. So you've got, you know, your sanctions, the fact that the money can be taken away from you and the impact that that can have on, on mental and indeed, you know, physical health as, as well. You've got the fact that it, it tapers away as you go into work. So there can be disincentives there around work that can create a, you know, a poverty trap. Um, so the fact that basic income is unconditional, it's not linked to work. Uh, we would expect more people to actually, you know, be encouraged to go out and do some sort of work or activity. Because even, you know, there's, you know, volunteering and stuff like that can have impact on the amount of universal uh, credit that you can receive. We would expect it to, you know, untap more sort of human flourishing and activity in, in that way. And, and what about the other end? Because uh, I'm guessing it'll be a lot of people say, why, why would, as you mentioned, Bill Gates, why would Bill Gates get it? <laughs> you know, when they've already got all that much money, um, isn't that just sort of giving them free cash uh, when it's when it's not needed? So yeah, so that's another key element of this progressive UBI that we're, we're pushing. So we're not stripping away the welfare state. We're not looking for cuts in health and education and you know disability benefits would remain, although it's, as it is, is not a perfect system and, and, and does need reform for, for the better. Um, but the other element of that is that the basic income would be funded primarily through uh, progressive uh, taxation. Um, certainly in, in the long term, in terms of funding a UBI sustainably in the long run, that would have to come from higher earners, so looking at things like a wealth tax, higher income taxes, progressive income taxes rather than flat income taxes, higher national insurance on, on higher earners and, and that sort of thing. Um, we're also looking at things like carbon taxes, reforming corporation tax, closing tax loopholes, all sorts of different options there that would primarily place the burden of paying for the net cost of the UBI on, on the richer uh, of those in society. Um, so Bill would get his just under £10,000 a month under this proposal, but he would pay back uh, substantially more than that in tax. So he would be a net contributor to the system, whereas those on the bottom end of the income spectrum would be net beneficiaries in terms of the amount of UBI they would pay against the amount of tax they would pay towards it. Right, so it's sort of the exact opposite of what the the NI uh, the national insurance increase uh, <laughs> that's being pushed through is going to do. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, we also we actually have looked at national insurance within the proposal, and we have actually decreased it. 
uh, for those who are uh, would be paying the, the, the currently the rate of, of 12%. We've actually put that down to 10%, but for those who would be paying the lower rate, the higher earners, uh, we've put that up to 10%. So we basically leveled it out at 10% across the board. So it's an increase for higher earners and a slight decrease of 2% for lower earners rather than this 1.25% increase or whatever it is the conservatives are planning to do uh, next year. So we sort of, I think we had a bit, a bit of foresight on that, that, that that is a tax that primarily affects you know lower earners, middle earners, and that is not who we foresee funding this basic income. And it's very much coming from the top end of the income spectrum. I mean, so far you've absolutely sold it to me. But I mean, what's the what are the you know are there difficulties in implementing it? I mean, one of the things that you sort of mentioned there of how you would be funding it and, and through a very sort of progressive taxation system. But it, would it would it be cheaper, you know, for the country and for the mm. economy? Uh, I, I say that sort of <laughs> with quotation marks around how often we we hear that, whether it, with uh, a real ignorance as to the long term kind of um, benefits of these things. But the you know. Would it be cheaper implementing this than our current universal credit system? And isn't it quite hard to make sure everyone gets a basic income? How, how do you implement it? Are there issues in doing that? So you know, I like to think of it of it's not going to be cheaper, but it is good value um, because of the benefits that it would bring. So you do have some obvious immediate savings from replacing universal credit. A basic income of you know 800 pounds or so would replace pensions as well, providing it had some sort of triple lock system to protect that. Of course, the Conservatives have now rolled that back to a double lock, hopefully temporarily, but um, we would want to see some sort of triple lock system to, to make sure that purchasing power wasn't affected under inflation and, and so on. Uh, but in terms of the benefits, you know, it's also an investment in society and helping society to flourish. And a lot of people don't realize the huge cost um, of poverty in the UK every year. Uh, it's estimated to be around 80 billion uh, a year that we lose to the economy as a result of poverty. That's everything from your know, healthcare costs related to poverty, policing, cost of disconnected communities, you know, poor, poor mental health. It's all tied in together and a financial cost can be attributed uh, to that. Uh, and whilst that cost is not going to be eliminated overnight by removing material poverty, which, you know, by the way, UBI, we can safely say would eliminate material poverty overnight by its very definition. Wow. That's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty huge thing to say. It would eliminate material poverty. There are other aspects of, you know, poverty, you know, deprivation is deep, deeply rooted in society and can't just be immediately resolved by, uh, you know, putting cash into, into that area. But it's something like, you know, if you take mental health, for example, and particularly in Northern Ireland, we have a severe mental health crisis where the health service simply can't keep up with the demand for the service. You know, it's the difference of that person who has a mental health condition because of financial stress or worry, suddenly having that weight lifted they don't have to go to the gp or they don't have to check in and use an acute service and that lessens the load on the service overall and allows it to be redeployed and reinvested in other areas to support other people um, and that all has a ripple effect in terms of reducing the load on the system saving costs and also helping people down the line who potentially have more serious uh, mental health issues and you know may end up hospitalized may end up you know committing suicide and all of the costs uh both you know social and ec economic related to that that's amazing i mean one of the things i found really interesting reading the proposal is sort of the you know 
you start by mentioning the 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 global banking crisis happened in two thousand and eight and the effect that that had. And I I feel like we've forgotten about that because we've now had the pandemic and and a lot of the talk now is the need to repair from the pandemic, but. We've seen, you know, big issues now in in poverty and and an increase in poverty since since two thousand and eight, really. And it, it, you know, did you feel like there's sort of any of the the government support system that's coming through, any of the plans that are happening now, are going in any way to to fix either the pandemic or fix anything that's happened since then? So yeah, it it, it doesn't. I mean, I think we've got a bit of a perfect storm of, of crises uh, coming down the line. I think you've got you know the mental health fallout from from COVID and the effect that that has had on many people. You've got the Conservatives talking about tax rises on people who have on, on 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 lower incomes. You've got clear issues around you know fuel shortages and you know supply chain issues and all the all the panic and worry that comes with that and inflation that comes with that in terms of people's purchasing power being reduced. You have a housing market that doesn't have enough supply and is dramatically overheating and, and pricing people out of being able to actually get a get a home. Um, that also can create bubbles that could have devastating consequences down the line. And of course, you've got all of the fun outworkings of, of Brexit uh, as, as, as well and everything that, that, that that's brought. So yeah, I think you know there's there's a lot of problems down the down the road and a little bit of money in people's accounts. Uh, every month can definitely help to alleviate some of those concerns, some of those problems, to build a sense of security and ultimately build resilience uh, into the the economy. If you take the example of two thousand and eight, it's it's quite a good one of the main reasons we've talked about it and sort of contrasted it with now is that the the. Uh, monetary response is somewhat similar in that 2008 they they responded with a, a program of, of unprecedented quantitative easing or, or money printing and um, but that money was pumped into the bond market uh, to keep banks and uh, keep the you know financial markets afloat and so on uh, and what they say is that you know they basically gave out money, uh, helicopter money. You know, they were printing money, dropping it from the sky, but the money landed on uh, Wall Street rather than Main Street. It didn't actually go into the pockets, into the bank accounts of the people who needed it most. So you still had people who were in difficult financial circumstances. Joe Bloggs was losing his house, was defaulting on his mortgage, wasn't able to keep up with his payments, was you know homeless or you know going through severe financial difficulties as a, as a result of that. Um, Whereas what you actually saw, you know, back in 2008 was massive inflation in luxury goods markets. Um, so things like, you know, yachts were massively going up in price because actually the rich had their incomes largely secured during that period. I think furlough to an extent has, has done a good job of, of keeping people's incomes secured. You know, it could be better. There is a lot of people who were excluded from it. Overall, it hasn't been a bad program, but a universal basic income would be much better because it would ensure that every single person is uh, is insured against those economic economic shocks and, and no one slips through the, the cracks. So what we're really talking about is, yeah, helicopter money that reaches everyone, people's quantitative easing. Um, and that's how it differs from the, the monetary response in 2008. And, and we propose to fund that first year of the UBI entirely through that people's quantitative easing, that money creation option. And then that would be sustainably funded in the long term through, through additional uh, taxation. Where, has uh, has universal basic income been been? I know it's been trialled in a few places. What's been the results of that? Where's that happened? With what have been the mm -hmm. results? And I know because the Welsh government, I think, are, are planning, aren't they, to to give it a trial at some point? 
Yep. Yeah, Wales are, are looking at it. And there's great work being done by the UBI lab. Wales working closely with the, the Welsh government to try and move that along. The uh, Republic of Ireland also has it in their programme for government to explore universal basic income. Those plans are progressing. Scotland has looked at it in detail. The SNP are, are very supportive of it. Um, but it has been tested in, in many other places as well. In Canada, there's trials going on right across the, the US, parts of Africa, parts of India, parts of Europe uh, as, as well. Um, looking particularly at those you know, Western uh, countries of Canada, US, uh, Europe, um, and you know, comparing those to the UK similarly, you know, culturally and economically and, and so on. Um, comprehensively, um, we've seen across uh, any of the, the pilots or trials improve mental health and well-being. That's sort of been you know, put to bed that that is definitely one of the income uh, impacts of a basic income. Saw so that in Barcelona, in Finland in Canada, in the US uh, as well. Uh, generally, little to no impact on labour market participation. Uh, so generally, people didn't work more or less, which I think is a fairly positive um, outcome because a lot of people will assume, oh, if people get basic income, they just won't work. Um, so you know, I don't think that it's ever going to be the main outcome that people going out and work more necessarily. I think they'll do different types of activity. Uh, and that is what some of the trials find as well, that people spent more time caring or in education, there's particularly a trial from Canada in the 70s that found that uh, young men, uh, teenagers, spent more time in school, stayed in education, you know, completed high school, went to college, etc. Uh, and also that younger mothers took longer in maternity to, to raise and care for children. So both of those, you know, very positive outcomes in terms of uh, creating a better and, and stronger, you know, more educated and more caring uh, society. So it's those sort of impacts and that that's all linked into that sort of cost of poverty and, and building a more resilient society that we've, we've, we've been talking about in the proposal. Yeah, I, I did like there was a section in there about uh, how it would help boost the arts. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm in. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> that's all I needed. Um, that's really, So, I mean, you know, what's what's the issue in selling this uh, to, obviously, the Conservatives have had no interest. They, don't, mm. You know, as we mentioned, it was said a lot during the beginning of the pandemic. I didn't hear anything about it at the Labour conference this weekend. <laughs> um, I don't think. Maybe I missed it. I, yeah, I did zone out while watching a lot of it. But... Um, you know, why is it so hard to, to sell this? Is it just an ideology issue or, you know, is it because there's money in, in poverty for, for some people? That's a good question. So, yeah, one of the things we do talk about, I've talked about in, in the lab is this sort of poverty uh, industrial complex. I mean, there's whole, you know, uh, charities and, and think tanks and, you know, indeed politicians who sustain themselves off of poverty in terms of, you know, talking about it and finding piecemeal ways to deal with it and, you know, £20 uplifts and universal credit and so on that are never actually going to reform the system. And really what is necessary is this mindset change that, uh, and I think, you know, it's probably a difference between a fixed and a, and a growth mindset in some of our, you know, political uh, elites that um, poverty doesn't need to be uh, something that is just a fact of, of life, a fact of society, it can be, you know, eradicated. And I think, you know, if we want to reach a sort of higher level of human functioning, that's one of the first things that we need to do is eliminate poverty and make sure everyone has a basic level of, of uh, economic uh, security. I mean, the whole idea of universal healthcare or even universal education 100, 150 years ago was thought of as mad and, and radical. Uh, and that got done, you know, post-war education before that, uh, obviously. Um and that's why we talk about basic income as being our generation's NHS, because that's one of the you know major 
issues that needs to be tackled in today's society. We have so much wealth and, and yet we have so much poverty uh, and, and deprivation as well. In terms of changing those mindsets and how we go about uh, doing that, I think, yes, that the Labour Party does have a long way to come uh, at leadership level. There's some really good people within the Labour Party who've been pushing this. Welsh Labour have done a, a fantastic job of, of putting it on the, the agenda uh, there. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, John, John McDonnell had it in the, the manifesto in um, I think if not in 2017, definitely in 2019, around support for trials and a, a trial in Sheffield in, in particular, which came out of the work of the UBI lab, uh, Sheffield, uh, by the way. So hopefully Labour will realise that if it wants to win the next general election, it needs big and bold ideas. What I saw coming out of the conference yesterday was tinkering around the edges, you know, little policies that they've been lobbied on that are good in themselves but aren't really going to win hearts and minds and I think part of the trepidation around basic income is the fact that it is a big policy it's a radical policy it will fundamentally change society it will have all sorts of substantial outworkings in terms of how society organizes in terms of how the economy functions a lot of those outcomes are uh, very difficult to predict as well you know there will be a lot of flux and I think politicians always you know by their nature like to play it safe don't like to take those those risks so i think it's that element of sort of you know institutionalism uh, that doesn't want to to break from the, the current way of of thinking um i think also on the left there's a sort of outdated uh marxist old school marxist ideology that prioritizes work and public services as the only roots out of poverty rather than just you know solving po poverty is a lack of cash you know that's you know, basic definition poverty is a lack of money so surely the best way to cure poverty is to give people money and i think you know that ngos have been discovering that for for decades in the developing world around cash transfer programs that that's the most transformational way to lift people out of poverty but we still have this mindset within a lot of the left that no we need a we need a jobs program or we need to invest in public services and then people can lift themselves up or then you know it will trickle down it's the same sort of trickle down mindset as you know Reagan-esque uh, economics, you know, if you invest in public services, people will slowly be lifted out of poverty. But we have the wealth, we have the means in society if we make bold political choices uh, to actually go and direct and address poverty at its root cause by redistributing money and putting money into people's pockets. It's that thing, is it? We constantly hear about the working working people, and there's lots of people that can't work, lots of people <laughs> who are unable to work. There's not enough good jobs, or right? there's all these sort of other yeah. reasons. And, and like you mentioned, the benefits of just being giving people a chance to go further education, to look after their kids more, to kind of explore the other areas of life that end up benefiting is all. Yeah, oh, well, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can Sorry. also ask, you know, what what is what is work in the 21st century you know what what should it be is it you know going to school is, is is work going to university you know caring for a family member or a child volunteering setting up a charity or a social enterprise setting up a small business that isn't necessarily making millions but is maybe providing a service yourself working in the arts a very valuable service that is completely you know unrecognized and also unremunerated uh, in, in a lot of ways for a lot of people you only do it for free because uh they they love it and a universal basic income would make that much more accessible for so many people um and i think that is in this whole sort of 
idea of reframing what work uh, needs to look like. And I think that also comes on the back of the inevitable march towards automation that we're going to see over the next 50 years. And we're already, already seeing it in terms of, you know, self-checkouts and, and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's happening before our eyes, but it's going to quickly uh, accelerate. Uh, there's going to be less and less jobs. Um, and that is not necessarily a bad thing if we can effectively redistribute the wealth that is being created by McDonald's and Amazon and Tesco's as they replace their workers with much more cost-effective self-checkouts and, and self-flipping burger machines and, and so on. If we can effectively redistribute that wealth that is created by the machines and put that into a universal basic income, it's good for people. Um, because they no longer have to go into that, what you know, Alan Graber, who passed away last year, sadly, called bullshit jobs. They're actually given the freedom yeah. Yeah. to choose what they want to do and go out and do that. But also it's fueling the economy. It's putting money into people's pockets so they can go and buy their burgers at McDonald's. They can buy things in Amazon. Now, hopefully they'll consider going to their local burger joint or to their, their, their local corner store, of course. And um, you, know, you do see that um, cash transfer programs tend to increase local uh, economic multipliers. But it's also you know, it's good for the economy overall to keep things going by constantly creating that, that churn um, of, of uh, stimulating consumer spending. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We'll be back with Patrick in a minute, but first... You might have heard Boris Johnson say in interviews this week, and he'll no doubt say it again in his speech, that wages are growing and that people on low incomes are being paid more. Now, obviously, we're all aware that if the Prime Minister told you it was raining outside, you'd be better off grabbing your sunglasses and factor 50 before heading out. But is he right on this? No, no, of course not. It's total horse shit fired out of a horse's arse into a horse shit collecting skip. Sorry, what I mean is, uh, pay did rise, sort of. The Office of National Statistics said from May to July of this year, regular pay rose by 6.8% or 4.5% when you take inflation into account as well, which you should, especially if you're in the balloon industry. 
So that is the highest real terms wage increase in 20 years. Hooray! If you're a Johnny only reads one thing and does no other research type of chump, because here's the thing, Johnny, wages dropped a shitload last year. Yeah, I know, I can't think why either. Really weird. And then they recovered this spring a little bit, which means it is marked as a bigger rise than it actually is. Plus, inflation is rising again right now, great news for those balloon guys again, but that means any wage rises are going to be parped out by that. It's quite the gamble for Johnson to say wages are growing when next to no one is ever going to see that reflected in their pay packets and it's going to be interesting to see if voters will just believe it because he said so while still unable to pay for anything and thinking maybe their wages just got taller or wider or if this is going to sting him in his large face by winter. Let's really hope for the latter. Johnson also said we're the fastest growing economy in the G7 and he's sort of right in that our GDP grew 4.8% from April to June which is the fastest out of all those seven countries that you and I can't remember what they all are. Can you? Is that America's? Is that the... Go on, you do it. Go on, go on then. Ha! See? Now try the G20, dickhead. And anyway... The GDP increase is compared to how it was in Jan to March, when again, I can't really remember why, but it was all just totally carked. Across the whole pandemic times, our GDP actually fell, whereas all the other seven places, wherever they are, I don't know, Middle Earth, Asgard or something, they all rose. So we're still world beating for shitness. Basically, every boast about how everything is doing great right now, from employment to transport use to education, is all against how things were when we were stuck indoors and watching everything that existed on Netflix. Well, gutted for Netflix, you now have shitter figures compared to then. Do you remember last year when Pretty Patel claimed knife crime was down to record low levels because no one could go outside to do any stabbings? It's basically the same, but in reverse. So this is a polite reminder that a big fucking pandemic happened and regardless of what number 10 says, things are still rubbish, but just less rubbish as we can go outside and do stabbings again to cheer ourselves up. Well, no, wait. Um, yeah. And now, back to Patrick. So, Patrick, what is in the resilience uh, UBI proposal that that has been released uh, this week? Yes, so we have a plan to give uh, every uh, working age adult four hundred pounds a month for twelve months, and two hundred pounds to every every child and every pensioner uh, for the same period. Uh, that would be on top of any other benefits or work-related income that they are receiving, so completely unconditional. Uh, we would not be paying for that for increased taxation. That would be through people's uh, quantitative easing, uh, and that would be to try and help the economy uh, recover and help build resilience into households uh, post-COVID. After that year, we have proposed a uh, full uh, UBI ramped up to £800 a month for all working age adults and pensioners and £400 a month for children. Um, and that would be a, a permanent uh, proposal that would replace a substantial chunk of the, the welfare state, likes of universal credit, would keep disability benefits, would replace pensions uh, and would be funded primarily through uh, additional taxation. So those that is our proposal in a nutshell there. And where have those amounts come from? Is that based on uh, sort of current costs of of living um, and elements like that, and minimum wage, or how how have you worked that out? Uh, so the eight hundred pounds, I suppose, is is the key figure uh, there because it would ensure that everyone in the UK has uh, an income, uh, a secured income around at, at around the poverty level. So uh, very important that the UBI can eliminate material poverty overnight. So setting it at that eight hundred pound level would would ensure that. Uh, and indeed, in terms of how you know households work and, and receive money uh, collectively, it would lift most people well over that level. Uh, but because basic income is paid to individuals, we want to make sure that every individual 
is lifted uh, above the, the poverty line as well. So very important question uh, for people listening to this podcast, just as the general public. Um, what what do we do if we like to increase the chances of, of universal basic income coming in? Because obviously, as we've said, doesn't seem to be that much interest from from the major political parties. But what can we do uh, just as as people? Yeah, so I think that the best way is to uh, read up on it, have a conversation about it with your friends, with your family. If you want to get more involved, there are many different basic income uh, groups, but of course I'll plug uh, UBI Lab uh, Network, go on our website and check out if there's a, a local group in your area. We have both geographical labs, you know, Manchester, Sheffield, Northern Ireland, Wales. There's also uh, intersectional labs. We have uh, UBI Lab, LGBT, uh, youth, women, and, and, and many others. If there's not a lab in your area, very easy to go online, find our contact details and, and set one up and we'll, we'll set up a meeting with you and you could be the, the convener of your own lab. And then from there, it's up for you to decide how you want to take basic income forward in your local area, whether that's hosting an event, lobbying politicians, getting council motions passed, or even writing a proposal for a trial in your area, as we did in, in Northern Ireland. We proposed a trial of a peace dividend, uh, UBI. Um I do think that political lobbying is probably the best way um, to, if, if politicians know that it's something that their constituents want, that they're talking about, and you know, to put it bluntly, that there's votes in it for them, they are much more likely to support it. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, lobbying the politicians, sending emails, making sure that they know that it's on the agenda with their constituents is probably the most the most powerful way to do it. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thank you for your time, Patrick. It's been fascinating talking to you. And uh, one last question, which is what I ask all the guests on the show with just the hope of furthering good information is obviously all listeners need to check out all, all the UBI Labs network. Um, but are there any other uh, groups, writers, um, sites that you that you personally like to go to, uh, whether about UBI or just other alternative proposals for sort of societal support? Where do you, where do you go to? Gosh, I mean, there's there's uh, there's so many um, out there, so inevitably I'll miss off a, a few here. But Basic Income Earth Network uh, was sort of the big first global uh, basic income um, group uh, worldwide. So go on their website. It's got some really good stuff in the history of UBI, on defining UBI. It has an annual uh, conference. Um, any of the work by likes of uh, Guy Standing is, is fantastic. So um, really, really good introductory stuff uh, to basic income. He's worked on a lot of pilots as well. Always fantastic uh, seeing Guy's work. Um, you know, Jeff Crocker is a good one for a, a monetary-based uh, uh, UBI. So uh, in terms of what we're talking about, funding basic income through people's quantitative easing, Jeff has done a lot on that. In the UK, there's you know, so many. You know, um, uh, Malcolm Torrey, Stuart Lansley, Annie Miller, you know, in the States, Carl White. Quest, Alex Howlett, like um, Scott Santons is a really good guy to follow on Twitter. He's a he's an activist based in New Orleans, and he does a, a lot of work around uh, spreading the ideas of basic income. So yeah, so much there's so much going on. I could I could list off names all all day, but um, yeah, get on Basic Income Earth Network website, UBI Network website, and start your rabbit hole journey from there. Big thanks to Patrick for having time to chat. You can find the UBI Lab Networks at ubilabnetwork.org or on UBI Lab Network on Twitter and Facebook. And you should be able to find their most recent report there too. Patrick's specific lab is UBI Lab NI on Twitter and you can find him on there too at Paddy underscore J Brown. 
anyone you think I should chat to or any subject I should chat to someone about, you know on this podcast, I mean, not just like a bus stop or something. Um, no, I will, if it means that there'll be seats free after I bore them away. Always keen for a free seat. Let me know, though, at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, and I shall endeavour to chase them down or find someone to chase down about that subject. Um, but obviously, you know, in a sort of less scary or farmer after some naughty geese way. <laughs> And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. If your ears didn't bleed while listening, or indeed they did, but that's the sort of thing you're into, then do recommend this show to other people who either enjoy bleed-free or full ears, and maybe also safer headphones. Why not chuck some money hard into the patreon.com forward slash bro site, or even give us a snazzy podcast review with an update about the state of your ears on Apple Podcasts or somewhere like that. Muchos gracias to Acast, my brother last sceptic, and Cat Day, and this will be back next week when Boris Johnson's campaign plans involve going around hospices and hospital wards shouting but what about the great wage growth, A, at people who are flatlining? The Conservatives then go up 10% in the polls. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Pandora Papers, toilet roll fashioned from the secret finances of the world's most powerful bastards. They've shat on the world, so now you can wipe your ass on 100% laundered cash that should have been spent on hospitals, but instead bought somewhere in London that would be a cupboard in any other country. Pandora Papers, soft, long and not illegal, but most definitely wrong. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.